1: Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Alfred Moore. Alfred is Lecturer in Political Theory at the University of York. He has a new book which is titled Critical Elitism, Deliberation, Democracy, and the Problem of Expertise. The book is published by Cambridge University Press. Now, according to a challenge that goes all the way back to Plato, democracy is unacceptable as a mode of political organization because it distributes political power equally among those who are unequal in wisdom. Plato goes on to object that democracies are suspicious of the very idea of expertise in political matters. He reasoned that political equality that is the kind of political equality that's characteristic of a democracy, misleads citizens into thinking that each person is also equally wise. Long traditions in political philosophy have proposed various kinds of responses to Plato. And according to a predominant trend in contemporary political theory, public (coughs) deliberation can serve as a way to meet some of Plato's challenges. Yet appeals to public deliberation seem to reintroduce some of Plato's (coughs) worries. For example, does the commitment to public deliberation suggest, with Plato, that wisdom, in the end, should rule? How can democracy introduce an ideal of deliberation that remains democratic? That's the general theme to which Alfred's book is devoted, and there's a lot to talk about. So why don't we begin where we usually do, uh, by greeting the author. Hi, Alfred. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm um, very well. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. Hey, thanks for having me. No, no problem. Uh, why don't we start off where we usually do again? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about
0: yourself? Well, um, what, where to start? I huh. was born born in London, grew up in Leicester, which is a small industrial town in the middle of England. Nothing remarkable there. I suppose I, my academic career is a little bit meandering. I mean, I um, I studied physics and philosophy as an undergraduate at King's College London. Um, and between studying abroad and uh, a master's program in politics, I did a PhD in political thought at uh, the University of Bath and then um, got a temporary job in, uh, in Ireland. And then from there, I got a, a European Union fellowship. God love the European Union um, to, to go to Vancouver for a few years to work on a project on epistemology and democracy. Uh, and it 's that project uh, from which this book ultimately came, um, and I suppose from um, after, after I left Vancouver, I came to work at Cambridge on a project on conspiracy and democracy, so it was another research fellowship. Um, at that I mean, more or less more or less takes us up to the present. Where you are you're, you're now sitting in a brand new office, I'm told. I'm now, yes, I'm sitting in a brand new office. I now have a, 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 I'm, I'm now a lecturer in political theory at the University of York. I'm, I'm in my brand spanking new office. Uh, the, sh- the walls are bare. My voice is probably echoing slightly from the lack of uh, furniture in the room. But I have a computer and I have a glass of water. So I, I think that's probably pretty much all I need right now.
1: Well, that's fantastic. Why don't we then uh, um, uh, get started in talking about uh, talking about the book, Critical elitism. Why don't we begin uh, with some of the some background? Uh, so critical elitism begins with a, or, or works within a, a general framework of thinking about democracy. Um, and, and to give it a name, uh, you know, the, the the book sort of um, comes out of uh, the deliberative conception of democracy or within the framework of deliberative democracy. Uh, more specifically, um, you take up uh, a particular version of deliberative democratic theory or a particular uh, a plank within that uh, general framework, uh, which is sometimes called the systems approach uh, to deliberation. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the the background conception of democracy and particularly about the systems view of deliberation?
0: Yeah. I mean, so as you said, I mean, I'm I'm working broadly within the framework of deliberative theories of democracy. And I suppose that's a broad family of theories of democracy that place a premium on processes of communication um, and justification and mutual reason giving um, in the production of democratic legitimacy. Um, and the the I mean, for those who aren't familiar, with it, you know, with the, with the sort of I suppose with the narrower paradigm questions, which is which is where I'm where I'm stuck a little bit with the systems approach. I mean, the systems approach is a response within deliberative theory to a particular sort of um, to a particular trend. So what happened? Uh, so deliberative democratic theory um, has. One of its, I, I think, one of its great strengths um, over the last twenty years has been the degree to which it has informed empirical research, and in particular, it's informed experimental political practice. And so, throughout the nineties and two thousands, we saw increasing numbers of attempts to create spaces, to create institutional designs, um, to create small forums within which we could somehow. Make manifest some of the goods of deliberative democracy, some of the things that that the theorists have placed a high value on, such as uh, sincerity of communication, a kind of uh, a humility, a kind of equality, a kind of uh, informed reasoned judgment um, but that, but have found that those sorts of qualities are precisely what 's lacking in a mass mediatized party structured money dominated public public sphere, and so I've sought to create these kind of small institutional spaces. So the paradigm, so the sort of, the, the research program, I should say, really, really of deliberative democracy I spent a lot of time focusing on both small empirical questions of political psychology and how small group deliberation works, what actually goes on, what sorts of power relations become implicit within uh, spaces of, of democratic conversation, but also with this experimental approach of trying to create what they called mini publics, um, and so for an example that people might might have heard of uh, is, is James Fishkin's sort of um, deliberative um, James Fishkin's deliberative um, polling, yeah, polling, yeah. deliberative polling. So these kinds of things, right? So that's so deliberative democratic theory, so it started out with some quite um, with some quite abstract theoretical and normative concerns, particularly from figures like Jürgen Habermas in the European continental tradition, maybe people like Josh Cohen in the States, and then developed into this rich paradigm, which was exploring a lot of empirical questions, engaging with political science and doing these institutional experiments. So what the systems view is doing within that disciplinary approach is trying to pull back the focus from the creation of small forums and the creation of pockets of deliberative uh, quality, so to speak within democratic systems and trying to pull back the focus to again, uh, the question of how, how we might think about um, making a deliberate, making a democratic system more deliberative or how we might think about how to identify deliberative potentials within a, a A larger political system and so what this has this has led to i think is a um i guess a re-emphasis on some of the early concerns about the public sphere but probably with a more fine-grained appreciation for um the the different functions and different values of talking within different sorts of institutions and so the deliberative systems view you know doesn't tries to move away from a um a conception of looking for one right forum and rather starts to ask, well, what sorts of qualities do different sorts of forums have? What are the specific qualities of legislatures? What are the specific you know, qualities of uh, an open public debate and, and of particular sorts of institutional spaces? So it, so it asks a set of, I think it asks a set of old questions in a slightly new way informed by the, the work that had gone on in between.
1: So Excellent. Can I ask one sort of follow-up on that? Does the systems approach also help uh, deliberative theorists address some concerns, uh, I think well-placed concerns, especially well-placed concerns that were voiced very early in the the development of deliberative democratic theory, uh, concerns about the demandingness uh, of deliberation that it seems Mm. like on some of the early versions of deliberative democracy – Quite heavy burden was placed on democratic citizens to be doing a lot of talking and thinking and arguing and reason giving uh, as yeah. you know as individuals. Where um, is it is 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 part of the motivation for the systems view to sort of focus on, you know, a, a sort of broader social um, uh, institutional questions, questions about the way social systems work to
0: sort of distribute the burden uh, away from individual yes. citizens. Yeah, that's 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 exactly right. I mean, that is one of the motivations that you can think in terms of a distribution of you know of, of the sorts of things that deliberative democrats wanted enhance. You know, wanted to, to enhance within democratic systems to think of them as produced in different spaces and in different in different locations in a way that didn't make this heavy sort of burden. This idea that everybody. You know this, this. As you say, it was you know this quite unrealistic vision of democratic citizens behaving like uh, behaving like like they were in a philosophy seminar and taking on themselves um, a role of being sort of detached from their material interests and uh, engaging in a certain style of, of debate. And so, definitely, the the, the system's view takes on board that criticism as indeed a lot of the empirical work in earlier uh, uh, earlier work you know strongly took on that that idea and said look there's a space for angry heated rhetoric right there's a space for um, there's a space for enclaves of people with common interests who aren't talking to others but are clarifying their demands and locating themselves and trying to find a voice within a broader public debate and that the systems view wants to sort of and, you know, give give appreciation to those different sorts of qualities and ask, well, how might then a democratic system come together? So so it, it opens up, I suppose, a new set of problems, but it does attempt to deal with that right. um, that problem of burdening the, the democratic citizen.
1: Excellent. So um, th- that's that's great as, as some background to uh, uh, to the analysis in the book. So. On the on the we'll start with the uh the encapsulation of the book on the back cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good place where, to stop. Yeah. Where uh um the the first sentence is uh democracies have a problem with expertise that that I'm I'm sure to our listeners, uh, everyone will say, oh yeah, I think I know what that means. (laughs) So maybe um, you can, you can tell us a little bit about um, the, I I take it there's more than one problem with expertise. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of problems or challenges the idea of expertise play or what what kinds of challenges are posed by the idea of expertise for democracy?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, one of the problems that I one of the problems that I started with, with, with was this, this question, I suppose, of how to construct expert authority sort of in a context, in a political context, a social context, in which habits of deference have, for, for various reasons, eroded, and people are increasingly empowered to challenge and contest expert claims. Uh, and, I mean, climate change, I mean, I think we'll probably come back to this later. It's an example which I come back to in the book, and it's, something that was certainly in mind as I set about this project, you know, seems to, to exemplify some of these, some of these trends. And I suppose the problem, I might frame it in terms of two, two contrasting intuitions. And one of them is that the, the capacity to criticize and contest expert claims seems to me in a, in a democracy to be a very valuable thing. Right. And precisely because Expert claims implicitly stand outside democratic debate. They seem to be a sort of precondition on a lot of views for rational deliberation and not strictly a sort of a part of it. But it seems plain enough, and it's certainly been a focus of many uh, critical thinkers, sociologists of science, among many others, that the question of, say, how problems are framed, whose voice counts within, a, you know, within the development of expertise, what sorts of values or judgments or assumptions or choices might be embedded within expert claims, that it seems extremely valuable to have procedures of public contestation through which those kind might be sort of exposed and adapted. So, I mean, to put it bluntly, criticism seems like the intuition seems like criticism is a valuable thing in this context precisely because expertise can be a mask for power. But on the other hand, uh, I, I have this sort of this also this sense that there is a great value to authoritative expertise within political systems, generally but within democratic systems, for sure, in which we need to 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 have. In complex societies, we need expert voices to inform political debate and public debate. Public deliberation needs to be informed accurately about technical potentials of, of particular things. They need to be. And this is a sort of, I suppose, a, a very old sort of Deweyan point. But in order to, in, in order to um, credibly kind of act on the kinds of things that we might want in the world, we need to be well informed about. Um, well-informed about facts of the case, but well-informed about technical potentials and the sorts of expert judgments that we're going to rely on. So, yeah, we need experts to help us inform political and public deliberation. We need experts to empower collective action. So when we, you know, when we take up policies, when we make a decision about something, it doesn't just automatically fall out. It involves a lot of complex further judgments, and those judgments um, are, are sort of, Substantively rich, they often involve a lot of discretion, and there's an important role for for experts in in getting things done in democratic life. And I mean, and this isn't an exhaustive list of things that are that are useful about expertise, but they're also valuable for sort of telling truth to power, so to speak, right? of having a sort of of having a, a somewhat autonomous basis from which to push back against political claims. Um, And so, as uh, the sociologist Michael Shudson puts it, you know, we don't want our experts to be toadies, just telling politicians or telling the people, in fact, what they want to hear. So I have these sort of two, you know, these two intuitions sort of pushing against one another that that are saying, yes, there's something valuable about having contestation and criticism, and there's something valuable about expert authority. And the question, so the question I sort of, you know, ended up framing this as was how do we how do we have inclusion without collapsing the very concept of expertise? So how do we engage public judgment in ex- expert practices in a way that doesn't just reduce to a kind of populism?
1: Right. Excellent. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a problem with a, with, with a long pedigree, <laughs> uh, Yeah. Uh, right? Uh, very going expensive. back to Plato. Um, so yeah. the, the, the uh, let me just make sure I've got it. So the, the sort of two prongs, the, 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 the competing intuitions are are as follows. Uh, on the one hand, it seems like it's, it, it's, it's essential to democracy that nobody has to defer his or her judgment, uh, that, uh, that democracy involves um, exercises of judgment, uh, and um, that includes um, processes of uh, challenge and objection and contestation. So it looks like we need a lot of that. On the other hand, the complex problems to which democracies um, – uh, that democracies have to address look like they – can be addressed intelligently, to use a Deweyan word, uh, uh, only um, if there is some degree of um, acknowledged expertise. Only if we can, let me put it this way, to further Deweyanize the thought. Um, uh, only if we could make um, good use of the division of epistemic labor. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Excellent. So um, th- then, I guess one way to, and, and the way that you 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 cash out the uh, the issue. Um, or the way that you characterize the conflict between these two intuitions is that we need a distinction then between epistemic authority and political authority. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Or, and, or, or I suppose as, as I, as I put it, it's more that we need a, a democratic account of expert authority in a sense. I mean, one of the things that I, so one of the things that I try to do is, is, Try to think about expert authority not as something that stands outside politics and that simply must be taken up in deliberation, or taken up, you know, taken up somewhat blindly. That we're sort of in a, in a position of having to rely on experts in this sense before we can then go on to to form our own judgments and, and, and so on. But one in which there's a sense in which the judgment of the judgment of ordinary citizens is involved in the production of expert authority. Yeah, Could um, you tell us a little bit how, about how that works? So one of the big, I suppose I do start with that distinction between sort of epistemic and political authority. And I, one of the ways in which you might commonly distinguish between political and epistemic authority is in terms of the role of a kind of surrender of judgment. Right, And we might think that, you know, Oh, oh we commonly think that the concept of authority, the concept of political authority, but also the concept of epistemic authority, involves some moment of surrendering one's judgment and replacing it with the judgment of another. It involves this this notion of um, surrendering. But in political relations, we can also quite clearly sort of distinguish between submitting in our conduct, but not in our private judgment. So we can say I'm choosing to, you know, so we can say I'm choosing to go along with political authority, but I'm not giving up my independent judgment of the, the terms of that relationship, so to speak. So there always remains this sort of tension between sort of trust and judgment within relations of authority. And I suppose the puzzle that I was, uh, I was thinking, at least at this level of thinking about concepts of expert authority was that this sort of separation seems not to apply so easily to expert authority because the idea that we could separate our sort of public conformity on the one hand to our private judgments on the other. sort of doesn't seem to work when we're, when we're being asked to defer, you know, to, to in essence say, uh, believe a claim because some authority has, has, has made it. And so it's this, you know, and, I mean, Nancy Rosenblum, I use as an example of, of someone who sort of sets up this problem. So Nancy Rosenblum sort of mentions, you know, she says that the liberal dynamic of trust, distrust, and judgment is irrelevant to epistemic authority. Deference to the superior knowledge of experts is just that, and it stems from a sense of inferiority and in faith. And so what I wanted to do was then sort of push back against that sort of intuition a bit, you know, and and, and get to a sense in which, we can still have expert authority, but we can have it in a way that engages our judgment of the terms of the relationship itself. And it's and it's in this context that I draw on. I found it. I just found it useful to draw on Jonathan Cohen's distinction between belief and acceptance as a, as a sort of as a way of framing this uh, more critical relationship that we might have between you know because he distinguishes between belief in the sense of say, reporting or introspecting some feeling that you just happen to have about the world, right? about the the truth of something, and acceptance as a reflective, conscious judgment to take up a claim as what he calls a sort of a policy for reasoning, as a decision to make something present in your judgment. Um, And so I found that a useful way of of Framing this possibility of being within a relation of epistemic authority and yet not letting go of one's capacity to one's capacity to sort of judge the, the terms of that relationship
1: so is the thought then that um, in in when it comes to the epistemic authority the, the 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 report of the of the epistemic authority is such that one could um uh defer uh d- to that uh, authority uh and in some sense um adopt uh the report from the authority without um without sort of fully surrendering one's judgment yeah
0: yeah i mean that's the that's the thought i mean that's the idea that's the thought i wanted to at least develop and and, and try to you know and, and try to work with here and this idea um that you know you could Agree to treat something as a fact for the purposes of a policy deliberation while continuing perhaps to not believe it or to privately doubt it or to have you know and to contain those those doubts while one is still in this in this relationship so that we can be within a relationship where we accept authoritative claims and yet still worry about them um, and so i mean it's i and, and I suppose that's, and that's something that I, I try to push through later in the book where I talk about sort of institutions and practices of, of contestation because it's sort of, I, I argue, I suppose, that part of the value of contestation is that it encourages a reflective relationship, right? It encourages this, the possibility of reflective acceptance instead of, say, just blind belief or disbelief, or just sort of, you know, happening to believe or disbelieve claims.
1: Right. So good. So why don't we um, maybe then uh, I'll ask you to at this point sort of pull, you know, to, to, to fill in more of the detail of the positive view. So your, 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 your view, which um, sort of has as its central plank this kind of distinction where it's possible to give epistemic authorities their due without surrendering uh, uh, or, or without in, in, in problematic ways. Uh, Deferring—that is, that there's a space where you can ex- give the authorities their due, but still uh, exercise your judgment. You call this view uh, mm. critical elitism. Can you can you spell out some of the details about the the the, the broader picture? Yeah, well, I mean, the the—I
0: mean, I was I, I was unsure about using the term critical elitism, but I, I ended up I ended up going with it in the end because I wanted to capture a sense in which I wanted to characterize something that is a relationship of inequality. And so that is a sort of essentially a kind of hierarchical relationship, but to emphasize the way in which I imagine, uh, I propose that critical judgment is essential to the production of that relationship. So to the production of expert authority. Um, and I, I think that that general sort of view as we've, we've just talked a little bit about it in the, in the more conceptual terms, but I think that general view has sort of democratic or has institutional implications, because if we say that this practice of authority, you know, requires not um, not docile um, agents, citizens who believe what experts tell them, but it requires autonomous agents capable of capable of a kind of judgment in this context, then it it also demands that we we think about the institutional conditions that enable those kinds of reflective judgments. That is, that we enable institutions that don't presuppose the relation with, between experts and citizens is one in which experts privately do their business and produce claims, and then citizens just believe them if they're you know if they're good citizens, but rather institutions that set up um, avenues and possibilities for a kind of um, critical scrutiny and contestation that can at least give the potential for pushing back, testing, and in effect testing expert claims to authority by making demands for justification. And so this, to me at least, what I wanted to do with critic this, this critical elitism was link together these quite sort of abstract um, thoughts about the nature of, Epistemic authority, but link them to institutional problems and possibilities. So, so to me, these two were were quite closely linked. By recognizing a potential role for judgment within the production of expert authority, it also pushes us to ask about the kinds of institutions that might support that judgment or how that sort of process can go wrong, the way, you know, and what sorts of. So, how. That that took me at least towards a more um, yeah towards towards a, a set of institutional design questions I suppose
1: right right so why don't we pick up there so one of the um, one of the maybe we'll we'll call it a case study we might say in the book uh, has to do with climate gate and mm. and some. Uh, way in, a way in which maybe a way in which the uh the idea of contesting expert uh uh um claims can go wrong or or one of the the hazards that that yeah. that, that this invites um so uh g- can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, uh about that discussion in the book
0: yeah so i mean as i said at the beginning i mean one of the one of the one of the cases one of the problems that sort of animated this in a, in a way was the, the question of climate change and that and particularly the way in which the the way in which knowledge about climate change was supposed to function in public debate um, and it seemed to me sort of some somehow a, a little bit problematic but one of the really interesting things about um the climate change debate well, from my point of view, is the creation of this weird and very novel kind of international institution at the level of a UN panel um, that is essentially a collection of a collection of very large group of experts um, drawing together, doing essentially um, extremely large literature reviews and trying to put together um, a package of knowledge that would be labeled the scientific consensus that that would be the the scientific consensus on climate change and then present that to um, audiences of policymakers and publics around the world and to me this this in its inspiration seems to seems to 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 fit the not so democratic model of expert authority in which experts do their business and then create a package of uh, a package of 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 claims that is then supposed to be simply taken up in in the public debate. But the IPCC itself has been, itself has an interesting history and has an interesting history in its relation to um, various attacks and criticisms that have been made of the process and of the, of the very idea of knowledge about climate change. So the climate gate um, debate was this, um, It was occasioned by um, a leak, a leak or a hacking of a number of emails from a small climate change research unit at the University of East Anglia in England in 2009, and this was sort of on the eve of uh, Copenhagen climate summit. And so this was a politically, you know, this was a politically charged time in the debates about climate change. But these emails were hacked, released, and essentially a lot of backstage. Talk among the the scientists um, was made public, and a lot of that backstage talk concerned getting around requests from freedom of information requests from antagonistic critics, who who they thought the the climate scientists, who the climate scientists thought wanted to take their uh, take pieces of information out of context and use in in campaigns to, to attack them, but which to climate critics seemed to expose the process of forming a scientific consensus. Essentially, what it seemed to do was say, look, there's this idea of the scientific consensus is sold to us as though it's the independent convergence of numerous different experts about the state of the world. And therefore, you know, we, should, we, should, we should believe it. What these emails seemed to reveal to the critics was that behind this consensus was a group of uh, a group of perhaps politically, perhaps ideologically, perhaps just professionally motivated people um, gaming the process, and it seemed to them to be a, a scandal which undercut the very idea of, of um, the very idea of an expert consensus around climate change. And so, what I really do in the in the chapter where I discuss this, um, where I discuss this sort of Difficult, puzzling case. Is say that is really expressed, I suppose, a bit of sympathy for the IPCC, but but also s- suggests that there is there is something problematic about this. There is something. There's a tension within this way of generating expert authority that it that it ends up um, falling prey to like, falling prey to this implicit expectation that. The consensus means there was no longer any significant disagreement, but, but by not articulating the disagreements and by not articulating the uncertainties in, a, in an open sort of way, it makes it vulnerable and a bit fragile to this, this sort of attack. Um, and as I said, I, I, I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to the institution because it has developed. It has developed over time to be, be a much more reflective transparent and sort of open institution in its practice so you know when you do if you do want to you know if you do want to sort of challenge their claims or look at how their claims were constructed you know you you really can in a in a quite remarkably open sort of way but there's still this implicit i think they 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 end up struggling against this implicit um Conception of expert authority that's, that's there in the in the very idea of, you know, putting together a giant international panel and developing something that's supposed to just stand as a sort of, you know, a sort of unit of expert claim in subsequent public debates.
1: Right. Right. So yeah. So you know, so it looks yeah. as if there um, the the tension that you're pointing to is 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 really interesting because. Um, you know, it's not uncommon uh, for to, – to hear people, um, uh, at least in the States I should say, maybe this is uh, unique to the States, um, sort of um, express the thought that, um, you know, uh, uh, you know um, uh, geeky professors aren't going to tell them – aren't going to dictate to me what to think about anything. <laughs> I, yeah. There's this idea that, um, that there's something conspiratorial about um uh you know when people talk about the scientific consensus on climate change um yeah. and the, the 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 climate um change deniers uh Sort of think that there's a that where there's consensus, there's got to be some kind of uh, um, you know something conspiratorial or yeah. or something forced and not rational about the consensus. Yeah, um, and so I wonder, you know, to to what extent then does the um, does the, uh, the the idea that expert authority is in a democratic system has to be authorized in a way uh, through popular processes of criticism and and challenge and contestation? Uh, to what extent does that require um, uh, of of democratic citizens, the people doing the the, con- the contesting and the challenging? you know, a level of scientific competence. So uh, let me just give mm. one other example, maybe unique, to, maybe unique to the States. I suspect it is, unfortunately. Um, well, not, I mean, I suspect that and this happens in the States and it's unfortunate. Um, uh, when um, uh, in the States, we still hear people um, say things like um, evolution's just a theory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah. and it seems as if uh, in that, people who are creationists of some kind uh, or intelligent design people of some kind. So to say it's just a theory, clearly they're, they're being misled or they're, they're employing a concept of theory
0: yeah. that
1: doesn't, doesn't jibe well. I mean with, um, you know how science works, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah everything's just a theory. And <laughs> yeah. in a certain sense, some theories are better confirmed than others. And so, uh, that it's that it's just a the theory is what makes it scientific, not what yeah. makes it something that we're we're not bat- We are, that that there's no requirement uh, uh, yeah. on our rationality to adopt, right?
0: Mm. I mean, I, yeah, because this is, I mean, in, in a way, this 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 put this brings back that that sort of essential problem, you know, this, this essential problem that that we have at the beginning, where okay, if we might we might want some. You know, we might want our sort of expert claims to be open to um, the possibilities of criticism and, and scrutiny in various ways. And yet it seems that the sort of public scrutiny is going is is going to be uninformed in such a way that that makes it very counterproductive. And I think this I think this this sets this sort of problem does. I mean, this this does get to our genuine sort of democratic problem in a sense, because what it does is it puts the sort of arrow of authorization for inclusion, so to speak, like with the experts, it says, we will decide who is qualified to, you know, we will set up the, the appropriate qualifications for criticism. Uh, in, you know, and in a way it's, at the end of that road, it seems like, uh, it seems almost like people have to be qualified, but people have to pass a certain sort of, uh, standard in order to contest. And that seems to, again, butt up against the sort of the democratic intuition, which is like, you don't tell me what to do. So, um, but I mean, that, that really sort of, yeah, it, rec- it recasts the essential problem that I suppose that, 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 um, that I'm grappling with. Um, When I think of examples like, say, this climate change denial, and examples like, say, examples like vaccine critics, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, this is another one where you know we have a genuine problem here, and it's a problem in that it's not just, um, it's not just about why it's nice to believe true things about the world, you know, it's 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 about life and death. I mean, it, it makes a difference for policy. And this is, these are, you know, one of those cases where experts are, you know, are, are advising on what people should do um, in a way that makes a material difference and in a way that um, where the stakes are, you know, where the stakes are pretty high.
1: I did an episode of New Books in Philosophy a, a couple of months ago with, uh, with an author who um, uh, named um, Mike Naven who did a, 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 did a book about the anti-vax community
0: sounds
1: like a book I should have read. <laughs> uh, you know, well, it, it's an, it's a, it was a very interesting book. You can go listen to the interview. Uh, yeah, but, I, will. I um, will. One of the things that was very, very interesting about that particular community is that um, uh, the, the average anti-vaxxer knows more about the vaccines than your average citizen. <laughs> yeah. So they exercise a certain level of epistemic virtue that somehow uh in in a way that um uh, this author uh um uh, Navin, uh, mark Navin, um uh theorizes you know they have certain epistemic virtues that that then get subverted by a, a certain kind of, uh, tendency towards conspiratorial, uh, accounts of, uh, of, of, of their, of their critics. Right. I mean, that seems yeah. to be the, uh, something goes wrong somewhere, but it's not in the information gathering or it's not, it, they know stuff about how vaccines work. Uh, yeah. and so it's, 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 a and maybe that is different, uh, from, Ooh. um, from the client, from the climate change denial group. Well,
0: I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it, from from what I know of some of the opinion and survey research, and there's a lot of political science stuff and political psychology on, on this in the climate change area, there's a similar sort of pattern in that the critics are on certain measures better informed about the substantive issues than people like say me who don't delve into the weeds of of the various reports and debates. Um, but who just sort of, you know, that I, that I do um, exercise a kind of trust in those, you know, in those expert, in those expert judgments. Um, and I suppose one of the things that I, one of the things that I take from the, from the kind of deliberative systems approach is this idea that, okay, can we, can we think about a way in which that sort of critical practice, even when it's misguided, right? Even when it's seems to be, getting things wrong can serve a useful function, like can serve a useful purpose in a broader public debate. Um, And on this question, you know, in an empirical sense, I'm I'm torn because I I sort of, I think on the one hand, part of the reason that I have, part of the reason that I trust the sorts of claims about climate change is precisely because they have been forged in the context of such skilled and hostile scrutiny. It's partly that context of contestation that gives me some grounds to think that this is actually, you know, this is actually a a pretty robust sort of uh, set of claims. And so in in a sense, I I end up kind of sketching an idea, you know, of, of a way in which certain, you know, certain groups of one eyed. You know, perhaps one-eyed, perhaps um, misguided critics can be sort of substantively wrong, or grab the wrong end of the stick, or be conspiratorial, or something. But and yet still make challenges to expert institutions who, who cl- make claims to authority, make challenges to them to justify and give an account of themselves. And it's that account is not going to persuade them, but it might persuade me. Right you know, and so that account of what they're doing, that account of their procedures, that account of the sorts of judgments that they've made, so in a way and and, and i'm the reason i'm wary is that i'm I'm aware that this sort of um this sort of thing I, I you know by saying well these 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 um you know these wild and unruly implacable obstinate conspiratorial, perhaps even you know malignly motivated or you know, financially motivated critics can have some could somehow be turned, like by some invisible hand, into a you know into a way a resource, of strengthening yeah. expert a resource for strengthening yeah, yeah. expert authority. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm sort of torn because in, clearly that can go wrong too, right? The contestator environment can be gained and it can you know. But it, I, I I wanted to develop that as one sort of potential in which we could say, look doesn 't have to be the case that everybody is you know that, that these critics are right or that even that they have a particularly good point. What matters is that the institution responds in a way that can give confidence to an an audience who isn't quite so uh, um, so obsessive about things
1: so good let me then that, that, that prompts a, a question so I'm wondering now what about uh, what your view entails from the um, with respect to um, the um, uh, social duties or social responsibilities or obligations of scientific inquirers um, mm-hmm. to, to subject themselves uh, or, or to make themselves available to this kind of scrutiny. And I'm thinking of one particular um, mm-hmm. uh, case. So um, about 10 years ago, Richard Dawkins um, wrote a, wrote a, wrote a short piece called why I don't debate creationists and his, um his stance in that essay was that he he he's no longer going to debate creationists because he came to realize that from the creationist uh, strategy, the point of you know the point of having a creationist debate, Richard Dawkins has nothing to do with the actual exchange of ideas. Ooh. It simply has to do with a PR campaign, so that the creationists, among their Com- you know, among the community of sympathizers can point to you know creationist scientists and say that person shared the stage with richard dawkins and the actual mm. outcome of the exchange dawkins claims the outcome of the exchange wasn't the point the point was just to have the uh, you know just to be able yeah. to say this our one of our guys went up against richard dawkins yeah. and and held his own against richard dawkins and he said so i'm i'm he, the argument is i'm not debating these people anymore because for them it's a pr it's a pr strategy sort of it's for them it's a pr strategy yeah. not about the science
0: yeah so
1: i'm wondering if that's not an additional kind of worry that um uh that the, if the critical elitism view requires that scientists engage publicly in ways that mm. um have them um, uh, exposed to these processes of popular or critical authorization of their expertise. That sounds yeah. like good stuff. That right? that that's, that's yeah. uh, that sounds like a good idea that's, to me. But then it looks like it can be it, it can be it can be uh, yeah. that can be manipulated or it could or be game. Yeah, it could be gamed. Right. Good.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I mean I, I I agree with you. I mean because I think that is a serious. I mean that is a that's a difficult sort of judgment that. Scientists will have to, that scientists have to make. I mean, I, when you were saying that, I was thinking of a different example, but that, um, I, I was recently at a talk with Deborah Lipstadt, who was in a similar situation with respect to Holocaust deniers and who simply wanted the implicit status that came with being on a platform in a, in, in a way that appeared as though they were two, um, rival, equally credible views on this. And, and I think and I think the way in which one of the ways in which we can respond to this is to is to think in more differentiated institutional terms about the kinds of platforms or the kinds of ways we might engage. Like on one sort of platform is this debating, you know, debating the rival experts or the rival claims. But I mean, I give an example in the book of a of a, of a different way of um, of engaging with critics that involved, that involved in this case, in the case of the Dutch Environment Agency, actually inviting climate skeptics into their building. Um, and it involved proactively taking, you know, proactively um, inviting a sort of crowdsourced, um, crit- you know, scrutiny of some of their documents with a typology of errors that they might find. Right. So they, so they in effect take the initiative of saying, you know, we, Will frame what look like appropriate sorts of errors um, and so, in that sense, you might you know you, you that expert institutions experts do have i think this this sort of duty, but they can be proactive about it in ways that that can resist this sort of gaming. Because I, I but but I think you're right. I mean this is this is something that's become more apparent certainly over the over the last few years and, and since I wrote the book it's become very politically apparent. That you know that there's a they engaging in what looked like a looks like a substantive debate can actually be a strategy of distraction or a strategy of promotion or to doing something quite different. And I think clearly as a matter of sort of practical judgment, experts do need to be aware of that context. But they the it, it points, you know, it points to a, a temptation, right? It, it it points to a temptation of withdrawal. And I think in the example of the climate skeptic, uh, sorry, in the example of the climate gate debate, one of the things that you see in the emails is precisely a, a sort of um, a sense on the part of experts of not wanting to give fuel to the critics, of not wanting to engage, and of wanting to, you know, with good reason, I think, you know, one you know, suspecting that freedom of information requests were part of a gaming, right? That they were they, they were part of a a political um, struggle in which they were being played. And yet by trying to withdraw in a certain kind of way, they ended up inviting more suspicion, right? By by, by trying to evade freedom of information. So I mean I think it just puts where where we're dealing with these uh, you know, where we're dealing with political issues that engage serious material and ideological oppositions, it's unavoidably and unfortunately does put experts in the position of having to make what are essentially political judgments and judgments about how their words carry weight and about how they're um, and how the way the strategies of engagement that they that they deploy, how they work and how they you know, and and how they can backfire. So, I, I, but I think that's a genuine, you know, a genuine problem.
1: Yeah, and I guess that one. Good. I, I guess that one dimension of the problem in in this sort of the way in which the, the way in which this sort of this idea of sort of critical legitimation of epistemic authority, um, the way in which it can be gamed, it's sort of, um, it, it the, the, the 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 scientific community actually has is, is put in a a position where. You know, the critics aren't aren't really playing the same game that they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. That the critics are really after something else, right? They're yeah. after, and so it's not even clear whether the scientific community has any of the skills, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. that would enable them to to navigate
0: this well. I mean, it yeah. it,
1: it, it it seems like the, the 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 problem runs deep. I guess is, is yeah.
0: And, and it raises the unfortunate uh, you know it raises the unfortunate specter of a, a, a group of climate scientists hiring Carl Rove to do their PR you know it's exactly if we want to, if we want to you know if we want to fight back in a credible way and, and you know uh, I'm not sure that would be um, yeah I'm not sure that would be a great idea but it but it is a yeah I, I think it is a genuine problem and possibly one that I sort of that I underestimated or haven't you know in, in the book and I suppose in a, in a way I Probably assumed a little not a lot more but a little more good faith in in some of the critical positioning and and some of the examples i mean if if I think of the example of say vaccine critics or if, or or think of an example with a sort of different valence but the the way that AIDS activists engaged with um sure. scientific expertise around those cases you know these were ones in which there were marginal groups with genuine um grievances. And a sense that they would be you know that their interests were not being taken into account in a proper way in decisions that were taking place at a technical level right and that they then that they sought that sort of engagement but I mean where we are dealing you know but but um and there's particularly now i think a you know a, a growing literature on sort of agnotology or the 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 um the study of the production of uncertainty in which, you know, in which you do see an explicit political um, gaming of scientific processes of, uh, you know, of of scientific procedures. And in a way that they're particularly vulnerable to precisely because they don't have the kind of this um, political or institutional sort of way of thinking about what they're doing.
1: Right, and I, I guess that in the in the in the, the sort of production of doubt stuff, I mean, this is a lot of stuff about the climate change denial uh, is is about this, where you know one of the one of the problems is that the way the public is um, encouraged to um, uh, think or adopt the view that there is significant doubt or uncertainty about climate change, whether it's happening, if it is happening, what its sources are. Mm. You know, often often those narratives appeal to um what in other contexts are just obvious epistemic virtues.
0: <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Right? I mean it's sort of parasitic on a a, a, a pretty attractive conception of uh uh of, of what good, critical, sincere, scrutinizing uh, yeah. autonomous citizens should be doing. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. somehow
0: I mean, subverts it, right? Yeah. Um, I did this, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's it is. That's that's it gets a lot of its charge precisely from that sort of claim, you know, and that the and the climate denialists, they don't call themselves denialists, of course, exactly they call right. themselves skeptics. That's exactly and, right. and precisely the, you know, and the struggle to define them as, den, you know, denialists with some sort of clearly psychological problem is the implication of denial rather than skeptics, which carries all of the good baggage from Galileo to, to today, you know, so this um this sort of subversion of what seemed like epistemic virtues of citizens is genuinely you know is genuinely problematic well um alfred
1: you've been very generous with your time and, and uh, <laughs> uh you know the, the, the last uh uh you know 6 or 8 minutes of our conversation just to suggest uh-huh. to our listeners that uh that the critical elitism book that you've just written really opens up, uh, you know, not only lays the framework for thinking about, but really opens up a broad uh, uh, range of, of questions. So maybe it's appropriate yeah. then uh, uh, to ask my usual, you know, final question. Um, what will you work on next? <laughs> yeah.
0: Great question. <laughs> great question. I mean, there there I, my, 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 I suppose I'm working, I'm really, I'm working on a, a few different things come come next. I mean, one of them one of them sort of follows directly from this, right? And follows directly from the shape of our conversation, which is, as I mentioned, uh, the last couple of years I've been working on a research project at Cambridge called Conspiracy and Democracy. It's been quite a broad-ranging um, sort of res- research project, um, but in which I've had a particular interest in questions of. Well, the sort of questions we've just been talking about now, right? The um, and also more general, as in beyond the question of expertise, questions of the relationship between trust and distrust in democratic systems. So I'm particularly interested in developing this idea of uh, developing or working more on the ideas of trust and distrust. Um, And I was going to, I mean, one of the things that I noticed when we were when we've been doing some of this research around. People who are writing and thinking about conspiracy and conspiracism is that a lot of them. A lot of the work is in political psychology, um, and among the many examples, one of the most prominent or one of the prominent examples that's used is climate change denial. It's used as a proxy, and indeed, in one of the papers, a guy called Stefan Lewandowski, who's a quite prominent um, who's a quite prominent political psychologist, who has written about climate change denial and has studied climate denialists. Um, he even makes a comment in relation to scientific consensus, where he says he thinks that you know he, he says sort of in passing and at the beginning of one of his papers about how you know the prominence of conspiracist ideation in this context is no surprise when we when we think that if people see what looks like a consensus and then they find out that behind the scenes that's actually people disagreed in fact and then somehow there was some decision. To, to to make this the consensus, they'll think that that was a conspiracy. And so, so one of the strands of work sort of follows directly from that in, in thinking more about the relationship of trust and distrust. Um, another thing I've actually been working on lately that doesn't directly have anything to do with the book, which in, in many ways has been a great relief um, and, uh, <laughs> and a great and a fun thing to do. But it's been thinking about the network public sphere. And I suppose it relates in a way in that one of the things when people sort of, you know, when people like me do a kind of hand-wavy sociology of the present, sociology of the last five minutes, as my, one of my colleagues <laughs> calls it, and says, look, part of the problem of this decline of authority is the rise of the Internet. It's the it's the leveling of a capacity for voice. It makes transaction costs lower. It enables people to find like-minded others more quickly. Cass Sunstein writes about all this sure. stuff. Um, so. I think the question of what difference the network, you know, what difference the Internet is making to our political public sphere is a genuinely important sort of problem in the world. And um, one of the things, one of the projects I've been working on lately has been a, been a project looking at um, online political discourse and looking at particularly the role of anonymity and identifiability within our online public political talk. And that's involved me teaming up with a data scientist and doing a lot of you know web scraping of data online comments, um, online comments from the Huffington Post from a few years ago, in which you know where they changed their commenting regulations from anonymous through to a, a different sort of hybrid regime to using Facebook as a sort of real name identifier. And so and then looking at the changes in behavior. So that's been in a, in a way a quite different project, but one that I've found fascinating and that has spurred me to be writing quite recently about anonymity and deliberation, which I don't think is a is at least within the you know narrow world of deliberative democratic theory. I think that that I, I, relationship hasn't really been really been very well explored, but it's something that becomes very much more prominent with the sort of possibilities that the internet creates.
1: That's, that's right. Have so, a quick question about uh, a related thing. So. Um I understand that in in Denmark there is a an online news outlet uh that um uh it, that it has adopted the policy of before a com- before you can comment on a news story you have to correctly answer questions about its content yeah. Yeah yeah so uh, i i was i was going to ask you if you know anything about uh is anybody uh, I, th- that sounds to me like a fascinating yeah. thing for someone to study
0: <laughs> no i i i've i've heard about it and i've heard um, i mean in a way it speaks to this one of the interesting things methodologically about the development of the, you know, the internet is that it creates enormous possibilities for experimentation and for in a sense, I suppose, online institutional design, thinking up sorts of devices and ways of structuring forums for conversation that could push them more towards the sort of thing that we might want from them. Right. You know, and by and so um, yeah, I I I think I might follow up the Danish example. I mean, it's a it's an interesting case. Yeah. 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 Well,
1: Alfred, we can the two of us uh-huh. can keep talking. So, but uh um I want to just you know thank you for your time uh mm-hmm. uh and and for talking to us about your your wonderful book. Uh, and yeah. thank you listeners uh for joining us for the discussion of Alfred Moore's book. It's titled Critical Elitism, Deliberation Democracy and the Problem of Expertise. Uh it's published with Cambridge uh, Cambridge University Press. Um thanks for tuning in to New Books in Philosophy and uh have a good day. Bye for now.